Today, we're going to be wrapping our series of messages on Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And throughout this, we've uh, had this image of passing the baton and the relay race. And the idea that grandfather, father, and son pass things back and forth to one another, lessons that they learned, that we've discovered as we've looked at their lives. And really the key question that we've been asking through this series is, what am I passing on? What am I passing on to those that are coming after me or those that are watching me? And the reality is, is there's just been so much that we've learned from them that we would want to emulate things that have been just incredible lessons, just raw courage and raw faith that they have demonstrated for us. Full out surrender, uh, obedience, just bow the knee kind of obedience and this image of this is how I walk with Father God. And it's been very inspiring. And on the other hand, there's been some things that we've learned from them where it's been definitively, don't do this. And this idea of generational sin that we have seen passed from grandfather to father to son and their families. And it could be that you find yourself in that where others that have been before you have passed this on and you, you've made the choice to enter in, but you're thinking to yourself, I'm locked in this unhealthy, sinful pattern. And one of the things we've discovered and we're going to hear about today is the God that we serve can forgive, he can heal, he can cleanse, He can break the pattern of generational sin that may exist in our life. And so today we're going to see some of those things we want to emulate and we're going to discover some of those things about him breaking that generational sin pattern. As today we talk about cleaning house. And as we do that, let me pray with you for a second. So Father, we bow in your presence now and how we thank you for your word. It's just such practical stuff, stuff that we can live our life by. And today is just another example of that. And we invite you to speak to us very personally, to hear from you, not in a strictly informational way, but so much more than that, in a life that impacts, in a way that impacts our life. And so Spirit of God, we just give you freedom to roam in our life, freedom to intersect in our life, freedom to move us in our life. And we pray these things now in Jesus' precious name. Amen. We're going to be breezing through chapters 34 through 36 of Genesis. And as always, we can't read this all, but I encourage you to read these chapters apart from our time here. They're wonderful stories of God at work. I remind you as we head into these that Jacob at this point in the story had been living with his relatives in the distant land for 20 plus years. And when he ran from him his life from his brother Esau, literally all he had was the shirt on his back and the staff in his hand. And now over 20 years, God has blessed him. He's married. He has numerous children. He's accumulated wealth and resources. 
And finally, in chapters 31 and 32, God says to him, it's time. And in verse 13, he says this, I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar and where you made a vow to me. Now leave this land at once and go back to your native land. So 20 years previously, when he was in Bethel, before, as he was running, he anointed a pillar and he made a vow to God. And God says, it's time to go back. And we see God saying to him here in other places, go back to Bethel, the area where your parents are, where you grew up. And he says once again to him, I will fulfill my promises to you. I am a God that keeps his word. There's no fine print that's going to rip you off at some point. I am a God that fulfills my covenant. I can tr be trusted and I will be with you. It says in verse three of chapter 31, as you go. And so Jacob goes ahead and does it. And he gathers all of his family and his resources. And it's a large entourage. And they begin the arduous, dangerous, expensive trip back. And if you look at the map, it's a trip of, of, we're not exactly sure how far, but for sure, it's a trip of hundreds of kilometers. It would have taken at a very slow pace, which is what they would have been doing with a large group, multiple weeks, at least two weeks, if not three or four weeks to make this journey. As he makes the journey, and we talked about this last week, he meets his brother Esau, his twin brother, the brother that had promised to murder him the first chance he gets. And when they meet each other, they're reconciled, and we learn so much practical stuff about how to go about bringing healing to a relationship and reconciliation to a relationship and restitution when it's necessary in a relationship. How we ask the question, am I avoiding anybody? And we saw great healing in their relationship as they went. And then we read in Genesis chapter 33, beginning in verse 18. After Jacob came from Padan Aram, he arrived safely at the city of Shechem in Canaan and camped within sight of the city. For a hundred pieces of silver, he bought from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, the plot of ground where he pitched his tent. And so he plunks down some coin and he purchases some land and he sets up living accommodations among the Canaanites. Now Bethel, where his family was, is located on a map close to Ramallah, about 16 kilometers north of Jerusalem. And then 50-some kilometers north of there is Nabalus and modern-day Shechem. It's already been at least a two-week journey, maybe three or four weeks, depending on their pacing. It's been hundreds of kilometers. It's been a very expensive, very dangerous, dry, dusty, arduous trip. And they have gone a long way. And they've arrived, 
And you're going to see a couple of pictures on the screen that I took when I was in Shechem of modern-day Shechem. That's what it looks like right now. The third picture is in the city of Nablus, and it has nothing to do with the sermon, but it's one of my favorite pictures from when I was in Israel. I was in a kindergarten, and there was this sweet little girl, and I just had to take her picture because I love looking at it. It's a great little picture. She was a cute little girl. They've made this trip of hundreds of kilometers and they have traveled all this way and they've stopped and set up camp in Shechem. And someone says, well, what's the big deal, Scott? They've gone all this way. They've obeyed God. Is there a problem here? There is a huge problem here. What happens in the chapter that we're about to read, there's a number of reasons for what happens in the chapter we're about to read, but at the heart of it, and at least part of the reason for what happened in chapter 34, is because they only went as far as Shechem, rather than the extra 50 kilometers, which would probably have been, for a group that size, at least a two-day journey extra, down to Bethel where God had clearly told them to go. Chapter 34, beginning in verse 1. Now Dinah, the daughter Leah had borne to Jacob, went out to visit the women of the land. She's out there working and visiting with the women. When Shechem, son of Hamor, the Hivite, the ruler of that area, saw her, he took her and violated her. His heart was drawn to Dinah, daughter of Jacob, and he loved the girl and spoke tenderly to her. And Shechem said to his father Hamor, get this girl as my wife. When Jacob heard that his daughter Dinah had been defiled, his sons were in the fields with the livestock, so they kept, he kept quiet about it until they came home. Then Shechem's father Hamor went out to chat with Jacob. Now Jacob's sons had come in from the fields as soon as they heard what had happened. They were filled with grief and fury because Shechem had done a disgraceful thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, a thing that should not be done. And so Jacob's daughter Dinah is out working or visiting with the women. She's raped by the leader of the Canaanites in that area. Then he says he wants to marry her. How warped is that? How sick is that? And naturally, Jacob and all of Dinah's brothers, along with Dinah, are deeply grieved and just filled with fury and anger. And the man that perpetrated this violent crime should have been severely punished. But initially, Jacob and his sons say nothing. Then the leader of the Canaanites, Hamor, comes and he says, my son wants to marry your daughter. Can we do this? And then we should let our children intermarry as well, something God had explicitly told them not to do. And then as our families start to blend together, we can do commerce, we can do trade, we can do business, we can get rich together, and we'll just carry on like this despicable thing never really happened, like nothing happened. 
Verse 13. Because their daughter Dinah had been defiled, Jacob's sons replied deceitfully as they spoke to Shechem and his father Hamor. The sons replied deceitfully. I wonder where they learned to do that. They learned that from dear old dad and mom, who learned that from their dear old dad and mom. And once again, we see generational sin at play in this situation. They say to them, if you keep reading, we can't give our sister to an uncircumcised man, which was the sign of being a Hebrew male. If you will agree to be circumcised, all the men in your city, we can make a deal. Remember, they're conning these guys and lying to them. And so the men of the city of Shechem talk it over and for some inexplicable reason decide to go ahead. After the procedure, they're completely incapacitated, they're healing, and it says in verse 25, of chapter 34, three days later, while all of them were still in pain, can't fight back, can't do anything, two of Jacob's sons, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and attacked the unsuspecting city, killing every male. They put Hamor and his son Shechem to the sword and took Dinah from Shechem's house and left. The sons of Jacob came upon the dead bodies, looted the city where their sister had been defiled. Rather than dealing with the one who had done the crime, which was a horrible crime, for which he should have been severely punished, they killed, and if you keep reading, or enslaved everyone and looted the city. And what happened to their sisters, I've been saying here, was all kinds of wrong, okay? But they drastically overreacted and took exaggerated revenge rather than seeking individual justice. Verse 30. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, he didn't know what was going on, Jacob did, didn't, because it was just the sons doing this. Then he says to these two guys, two of his boys, you have brought trouble on me by baking a stench to the Canaanites and parasites, the, the people living in this land. We are few in number, and if they join forces against me and attack me, I and my household will be destroyed." Gets after them, says, you've put us all at risk. Someone's going to come and slaughter all of us and take all our stuff. So let's just stop for a minute and ask a series of, I think, really important questions. Why did this tragedy in chapter 34 happen? Well, there's a number of reasons for this, but I would submit that one of the primary ones is that Jacob was only 95% obedient. He was told very clearly by God, go to Bethel. He didn't say stop at Shechem. He said, I want you to go all the way, the extra 50K, down to Bethel. Stopped a day or two, probably two days short of his, the place he was supposed to go. He buys land there, he settles there. And he begins to be influenced by the Canaanites in that area. Don't know how long he was there. 
Now, why did he do this? Well, because at this point, up until this point, he's been exercising a lot of faith and a lot of obedience. God has told him, leave your, your place from the last 20 years, leave your relatives, move from your established life, which is a never e- an easy thing to do. And particularly back then, it was a very difficult thing to do. It was a dangerous thing to do. It was a very expensive thing to do. It was an arduous thing to do. He leaves his father-in-law, Laban, that we talked about. He risks having a really nasty encounter with Laban, but he does it. Then he goes and he meets his brother, Esau, who he thinks is going to murder him, who he thinks is going to slaughter all of his family. And yet he believes God's promise where God says, I will be with you. And he obeys God's direction. Except he only goes to Shechem, rather than all the way to Bethel. Why did he do that? Well, I don't know for sure, but let me, let me speculate on some reasons. Well, one of the reasons might be is just lazy. I can't be going, bothered going any farther. The kids are fussing. My back aches. I've got blisters on my feet. My sandals are rubbing me raw. We've been walking all this way. I'm tired. Let's just shut her down here. Possible, but not likely. Maybe he says, well, these are just nicer digs here in Shechem. I remember 20 years ago when I was in Bethel, passing through here, I came through here. I remember what Bethel was like. And it seems like these Canaanites have it nicer here. There's, a little, there's not much water, but there's a little more water here than down in Bethel. There seems like there's a few less rocks we got to move. I think we should just hang our hats here. Possible, but I don't think very likely. Third possible reason I'll suggest is just pride. I know God told me to go to Bethel, and basically I followed his direction. But come on. I need to have a little control over my life here. I'm the head honcho of this family and this entourage, and they need to see me exercising some healthy leadership, which can be a really good thing, but sometimes it can be just code word for, I have my pride. So I ask you this. Is there an area or areas of your life where you're only being 95% obedient. I'm not talking about blatant disregard for what God has called us to do. You're not out there committing violent crimes. You're not embezzling money from work. You're not having sex outside of marriage. You're not gossiping all the blatant disregards for what God has called us to do. I'm talking more subtle. Not really obvious stuff. And for the most part, if people were to look at your life, they would suggest, wow, you know, at least outwardly, it sure looks like Scott or whoever it is, is tracking exactly with God's leading. But inside, you know, in no uncertain terms, I haven't fully complied. I know God told me to do this, and I've gone this far, 
but not quite all the way. I've gone 95, 96, 97% of the way, but not all the way. Now, it could be, and I'm not saying this is the only reason, because there can be a multitude of reasons for this stuff, but it could be that one of the reasons you're going through really difficult stuff in life right now, remember one of the reasons, really difficult stuff, being disciplined by God, is because of that stubborn, prideful disobedience. 95, but not 100. Obey all the way. Now, to his credit, we're going to discover Jacob decides it's time to clean house. He decides enough of this. Enough of this. It's time to clean house. And I'm guessing as he sits around the fire in the tent campground at night and he's reflecting on the horrible events of chapter 34, as he sees his daughter walking by, as he thinks about what his sons did and how they way overreacted. Okay, enough of this. This generational disregard of God has got to stop. The stuff I've seen from my grandpa, from my dad, from me, and now from my boys. It's got to stop. Chapter 35, beginning in verse seven, 1. Then God said to Jacob, go up to Bethel. The next 50K, the last 5%, go up to Bethel and settle there and build an altar there to God who appeared to you when you were fleeing from your brother Esau. Remember 20 years ago when you were running for your life? I appeared to you, you made a vow to me, you made an altar there. Go back to that place where I had told you to go and you didn't bother. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, get rid of the foreign gods you have with you and purify yourselves and change your clothes. Then come, let us go up to Bethel where I will build an altar to God. Bethel is elevated. As you go there, Jerusalem is elevated. So that's what they mean when you go up to Bethel and up to Jerusalem. Go up to Bethel. Then come, let's go there where I will build an altar to God who answered me in the day of my distress and who has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave Jacob all the foreign gods they had and the rings in their ears, and Jacob buried them under the oak at Shechem. Then they set out, and the terror of God fell upon all the towns around them so that no one pursued them. Jacob and all the people with him came to Lutz, that is Bethel, in the land of Canaan. There they built an altar, and he called the place El Bethel, because it was there that God revealed to him when he was fleeing from his brother. Now it's probable, highly likely, during the time that they were living in Shechem, we don't know exactly how long that was, but during the time living in Shechem, they were being actively influenced by the Canaanites, which is why God said, don't go there. And so some of them had picked up the foreign idol, the gods of the foreign idols uh, of the Canaanites. 
and they had put rings in their ears, which means something very different than people that have rings in their ears in our culture. In those days, when you put rings in your ears, what you were saying to everybody that saw you is, I worship the Canaanite gods. They had four or five main gods, and you're basically saying when you would put rings in your ears back then, I'm on team Baal, or I'm on team Asherah. It would like putting on a jersey from the team that you like to follow in hockey or football or whatever. And so they've been influenced by the Canaanites. They have four or five gods, and this is explicitly forbidden in the Ten Commandments and other places. Do not have idols. There's only one God. Why would you worship something you've got to make with your own hands? out of rock or wood or whatever. Don't do it. And so Jacob says, people, enough of this. It's time to clean house. It's time to repent of this sin. It's time to get rid of all this junk and be purified and get right with the one true God. And so I ask you this. When was the last time you did an inventory of your life? Where you just took, I mean some extended time, said, I am listening, Jesus. I'm listening. And I'm giving you carte blanche, total freedom to examine my life. To search every corner of my life, all of my possessions, to see if anything in my life or in my possessions are incongruent with my relationship with you. Anything that is not of you, anything that scripture says is not from you, anything that's putting barriers up in my relationship, things that I've picked up along the way. And I'm not going to give you a list of these things. And Give me a list, Scott, so I can run through it. It's not like that. I invite you to just ask God, I'm listening, Lord Jesus. Is there anything in my life or possessions that you would have me remove? And of course, you consider this question in the light of Scripture as well. And then whatever he lays his finger on, and it'll always be specific, and I don't care what it is, Whatever he puts his finger on, get it out of your life. Repent of the sin of having that in your life. Ask him to cleanse you and remove any attachments from the evil one that might have come into your life through that. And in Jesus' name, remove it and invite him to fill you with the Spirit instead. And so Jacob cleans house and is right with God. So one last question as we conclude. What have you learned through all this? What have you learned from Abraham and Sarah and uh, Isaac and Rebecca and Jacob and Leah and Rachel? And of course, what have you learned from God? I can give you a few things. You probably have some other things. But what about the example that they laid down for us that was pretty healthy in some parts? The parts where you're saying, oh God, I want to emulate those things. 
I want to offer myself. I want you to fill me with your spirit. I want to live the kind of life that will pass on like the baton these things to the people I love, to the people I influence. I want to live a life of obedience. I want to live a life of listening to Jesus. I want to live a life of raw, unfiltered faith, a life of obedience, a life of learning, a life of following when it doesn't make sense, humanly speaking. There's been a number of instances of this in the last 15 weeks. Or, on the other hand, the things are not of God, the lying, the manipulating, the cheating, the false gods, the playing of favorites and playing one person off inappropriately against the other, the stuff that they passed down generationally that just wrecked havoc in their lives, in the lives of so many others, in the lives of all of us, because we still suffer from the things that they did back then. All the world does. I'm going to repent of those things. I'm going to ask Jesus to cleanse me. I'm going to ask Jesus to break that generational sin, to break the pattern, and I'm going to affirm that God is the one alone that can come and forgive and heal and cleanse and forgive and put me on a brand new path that's not a path that's really bad. A path I'd be proud to pass on. I'm going to remember the promise of Genesis 12. God said to Abe, hey buddy, uh, I know you got no kids. And you're going to have to wait a long time. It was 25 years. And it was a miraculous supernatural event when it happened. But you are going to build a great nation. There's going to be a lineage that comes from you. The Lord Jesus will be in that line one day. There'll be kings in that line one day. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you the father of nations. I'm going to give you a land of your own. And I am, through you, going to bless the whole world. And friends, I would argue that one of the reasons, probably the only reason we're still even in existence is because of that promise. I think we would have destroyed ourselves through foolish, sinful choices a long time ago, apart from that. Then he reaffirms this promise over and, and amplifies it over and over again through Abraham's life and in Isaac's life. We've seen it now several times in Jacob's life. We've learned that our God, unlike anything else in our life, can be trusted. Absolutely trusted. When he makes a deal with us, when he makes a covenant with us, he can be trusted. He doesn't change the rules or the parameters or the boundaries at any point. He's the God of unbelievable mercy and grace when we decidedly do not deserve it. And so we end this little series where we began in chapter 35 with the promise reiterated one more time in verses 11 and 12. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and increase in number. 
A nation and a community of nations will come from you, and kings will come from your body. The land I gave to Abraham and Isaac I also give to you, and I will give you this land, this land to your descendants after you. I ask you one last time, what am I passing on? And I just encourage you to reflect um, on this stuff. The Bible's got good stuff in it. It's good material, right? Let me pray with you as we go. I feel so honored, Father. Yeah, so uh, just speak into my life to these people's lives online and here. Thank you that you just don't let us litter around in life hoping for the best, toying with depression because we got no purpose or plan. Thank you that you have the best purposes and plans. Thank you even when we don't understand. You're good. You're good. You're good. Thank you that we can trust you. Thank you that you know eternity. We were singing about that earlier. The uncreated one from whom everything comes. Thank you that you love us, that your mercy is available. So we go now thanking you for this opportunity to serve you in a way that brings great honor to you. And we pray these things. In Jesus' precious name.